Welcome to the Recovery Lab podcast. We're glad you were able to join us. Recovery Lab hopes to destigmatize addiction and normalize recovery. Our platform provides an avenue to share the many stories of those that have recovered from addiction, providing for the listener the most basic antidote to addiction. Hope. All right, everybody, we're back. This is episode 57 of the Recovery Lab podcast series. I'm Drew Hassan. I'm Daniel Anderson. We are the Recovery Lab. We're joined today by Ann Rodeo Fisher. Thank you, Ann, for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. This is incredible. I feel like uh, I feel like we're talking to, I don't know, somebody. A local that, celebrity. A local celebrity, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just, Man, the most, just the most kind individual in the world. Just the fact that you're here is... It means so much to me, and I know it does to Drew as well. Yeah, you were one of the first five or ten people I asked to be on the podcast or communicated with, so it's good to finally get you on here. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, and I'm sorry it took so long. Uh, we won't hold it against you. No, You're here today. Yeah, everything happens for a reason, and God's timing is absolutely perfect, so... You're here exactly when you need to. No resentments. Right? That's right. No, <laughs> no, no. Resentments so, not 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 good for us. You have both a personal and a professional investment in recovery. So tell everybody a little bit about about why you're a rock star. Well, I can't tell you that, but I can tell you my story. There we go. A little bit. That'll sure. work. Let's do it. Um, so, the quick version: um, I grew up in North Carolina, and perfectly. Happy, functional, supportive, loving family, youngest of five. Um, it's one of those stories we all talk about in the rooms, you know. I'm proof that if only I had two parents, if only I had an education, if only I had a supportive family, I would never fall into addiction. Well, it's not true because I had all those things. And I'm also one of those examples that... A person sometimes is just born with low self-esteem, um, zero confidence, shy, immature, fearful, all the things in the big book, you know, the, the reasons behind, you know, grabbing for a drink or a drug. Right. Um, it's a solution to the problem until it's not. Absolutely. And so for me, drinking was that um, social anxiety cure. And, you know, I was a, a bookworm, a jock. I played sports. I got straight A's, um, very deathly shy. So from that first drink on, it was everything textbook classic story. You know, the fear falls away. There's no more anxiety. Um, I feel accepted. I feel like I'm part of the group, all those things. And it felt good. So I kept drinking. And eventually, you know, like a lot of people, it's not just um, growing up, but, you know, um, sexual assault, trauma, things that happen as you get older into your teen years, into college years. And before I knew it, alcohol had me. And I hid it for a long time, for myself especially. Um, you know, you go through life, you get jobs, you get promotions. You have all these things that make you feel like you're okay, like you're good enough. Deep down inside, I never felt that, but I kept looking for all these accomplishments and achievements to prove to everybody else um, that I was good enough, that I wasn't broken and damaged and ruined. And eventually you can't, you know, can't outrun myself. I'm still there. Right. And so 
the short story is that, you know, after quitting my job, um, getting divorced, coming to Mississippi was my fourth, and thank God, final treatment center. Okay. Um, so somebody, I was living in Dallas, Texas, and one of the old timers there said, look, you know, I love you like a daughter. Um, I'll never give up on you, but I've given out. Was this at the Preston Group? It was Richardson. Okay, cool. I grew yeah, up no, in Dallas. It was Dallas North. Okay, yeah, yeah, on, yeah. Off Richardson? Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. You probably still know. Absolutely. And it's funny, his, his initials were Bill W. <laughs> not the same, of course. But, uh, you know, he kind of adopted me, and he said, look, you need to go away for a long time. And he said, if you would go to this place in Mississippi where I went 20 years ago, I promise I will come visit you. I'll find a way to come visit you. And when was when was this? Uh, 2011. Okay. So June 1st, 2011, I show up at COPAC. Um, whoop, whoop. Yeah. And sure enough, he came and visited me. I knew something was up because I'd been there um, about three months and I was going to stay longer. And they always did everything. You know, there was hardly ever co-ed. And so we had this, you know, announcement that there was going to be a co-ed group meeting and we had a special speaker and I'm like that's Bill I knew it was and sure enough he called ahead and got permission um the only way he could speak to the women's group was if it was a big co-ed meeting sure um you know I went through four months did you go to phase four or did you just well I did but I was in phase three so I was in my fourth month Mm -hmm. and I got up every morning, I went out to, you know, side with the street lamp on and I would have my big book and my daily meditation and I would pray every morning. And it was in my fourth month and I felt no different. And I had planned to go to an Oxford house back in Dallas um, after I finished, you know, four months. Sure. And my counselor, um, Barry, um, was talking to me. He gave Barry me a pass. B? He gave me a pass. He's my, he's a godsend to me. He's incredible. He gave me a pass to go to Dallas and do my interview for the Oxford house. They accepted me. I went back thinking I had, you know, another couple of weeks before discharge. And I went in his office and I just cried and I said, you know what? I feel no different. I'm not ready to leave. And he had to pull a lot of strings and do some work, but he got me into phase four. Um, and I had my car probably after the second month or so. And so every Sunday I'd go to Central Group. That was my first group, my home group, um, when I started going to meetings in Jackson. So when I got into Phase 4 and I went to Central Group, it was a Saturday women's meeting. And they make fun of me all the time, which is awesome. I don't care. I went to the women's meeting and I just started bawling tears. And I said, you know, I'm in treatment. I'm supposed to leave soon. I've done this so many times. I don't feel any different. And if I don't work the steps and feel different before I walk out, I know I'm going to drink again and I know I'm going to die. And um, a lady raised her hand and she walked over. She said, I'll be your sponsor. And it turned out she didn't have time. She had a lot of things going on, but she filled that gap and she took control. And I did what she said. And by the time she referred me to somebody else, um, That didn't work out, but I'd been to Central enough times, and I saw this lady every Sunday, and I started going in the evenings, 
um, when I could. And not that I put her on her pedestal. She had this peace and this glow about her. And when I heard her share in a meeting, it's just like we hear. She had what I wanted. She had that peace and serenity. And she had things in her life. She had problems. But she handled them the way we're supposed to in recovery. Right. And um, we still laugh about it. I literally, I was so shy still and felt broken and useless and worthless. And I thought, well, what if she says no? And I was like, finally, I don't care. I'm desperate enough. So I saw her get up and go to the back, you know, where the bathroom is. And I followed her back there and I waited outside. And as soon as she came out of the ladies' room, I just jumbled out, you know, hi, my name's Ann, and I'm in treatment, and I've been there four months, and I don't feel any different, and I know if I don't do the steps, and I don't get a solid fifth step, and I'm afraid to leave, I'm afraid I'm going to die, and, blah, blah. and she just stared at me like, what? You know? <laughs> but she, she didn't skip a beat. She looked at her watch, and she had the date on her watch. She looked at her watch, and she said, look, meet me here Monday at 1 o'clock, and we'll do your fifth step. And that was in 2011. It was the first week in October um, because I remember the fair was coming and we did step seven the next week at the fair. Twelve years. That's right. That's but, great. you know, I finally was ready to tell somebody everything. And she shared when she had something similar in her story, she shared with me. And it was just like it's supposed to be because I was finally ready to be honest about my part. And she helped me see the most painful things I had experienced that she taught me there's a difference between asking for something bad and deserving something bad and putting myself in a position because there was something in the situation I wanted to get out of it that I left myself vulnerable. So it doesn't mean I deserve it, but I can protect myself better in the future if I do the right thing and not the selfish thing. What was the fear leading up to doing your fifth step as far as being open and honest with someone? Was there, did you feel as though that you would be judged by your sponsor if she knew the real you or was there like trauma? And obviously you don't have to go into any sort of details, but what was that thing that was keeping you from being completely honest? And you can be as general as you want, but it was important for me. There was something for, for me, there was something that, that happened sexually in my past that I just, I just knew that if people found out about it, that they would not like me. And that's what I needed from everyone was to, for, for everyone to like me. So, um, and, and it wasn't until this time when I became at peace with that part of me and said, you know what? I am not ashamed of that. I'm not scared of people finding out about that. And it was like, God really took me by the hand at that moment when I became willing to talk about the sexual misconducts of my past. Uh, and I just came at, became at peace with that. So I'm curious as to if that was the winning ticket, so to speak, as far as your ability to be successful at long-term sobriety this time. I really think it was because I had brought up um, the sexual assault in previous attempts at a fourth step. Like this but you somehow fourth. abbreviated it. Or? Oh, yeah. Abbreviated it, and I had no role. 
So I didn't give the context of the store of the event. Sure. Um, but you know, it was my first boyfriend ever and I was deathly shy in high school. So being in that position with someone popular and whatever, now I'm popular. Now I'm getting attention. And I always thought, you know, I could have just faded in the wall before. So my part was after it happened, staying in that relationship and having to admit instead of telling one of my big brothers so he could basically kick his ass, which is what would have happened. And I wouldn't have even needed the police. Just understood. It would have been solved, <laughs> but I was too embarrassed. Sure. For and staying kind of frozen. For yeah. St kind okay. of, I guess traumatized is the right word. Just kind of frozen. Like, how can you tell somebody and lying? I, you know, that's when the lying to myself really started saying, well, I guess that's just life. You know, I guess that's what a relationship is. Right. Um, but I think the fear was in being judged and feeling totally stupid to not be the kind of person that would react the way I would now. Right. Which would be a whole different outcome. Right. <laughs> um, so I think just being able to talk to her about it and having her understand, it's similar to, um, you know, like domestic violence. It's similar to you become so brainwashed and emotionally abused and the and believing that you're so damaged that no one else would want you. Right. So you give in to, I guess this is my life. Right. You know, I gave a, a fifth step to a, a gentleman one time, and we were talking about the the role of alcoholics and addicts playing the victim. And he shared with me this story about how he was molested when he was a little boy. And he said, you know what my role was in all this? And I'm thinking, you didn't, you didn't have a role. And he said, I allowed that to justify my drinking and using for years and years and years. And I thought, well, okay, I, I guess, you know, we can allow the victimhood to continue until we want to arrest being the victim and try to get something salvageable and usable out of it. Right. And it seems like that's, that's, that's was the, the choice you made. Yeah. That's exactly what my sponsor pointed out. Yeah. And, the other yeah. times I had attempted to get it out, and I'm not blaming the other temporary sponsors. It's on me, 100%. Sure. But when I finally reached that level of honesty, that's the only way my sponsor could show me that, exactly that, which is you can keep playing the victim or you can separate the event from your worth and God, be, be responsible. hard to do, right. though. Yeah. That's the only way to be responsible and have personal accountability to get up and where do you go from here? Right. And one thing that's important to note, sorry, to, I'm not trying to, but one thing that, and, and it seems as though this is a reoccurring theme with people that I speak with, but it's an unbelievably important for me to say this. Um, while what happened in the past with the abuse and the everything, it was unbelievably unfortunate and, and sad and, just awful that it happened. Those experiences now that you're on the other side are have now become profitable to you 
in your ability to help other women who are going through the exact same thing. And without those experiences, you wouldn't be able to be of, of maximum service to somebody that say comes in your world and is really, really struggling with this and they don't know where to go, but you've had this experience and you can now help those people. So I try to, I try to take my, the, the whole sexual experiences that I had as a, as a child, not as from a, not take them on as a shameful, guilty uh, or a shameful uh, type of thing, but more look at those experiences while they were unfortunate. Yes, of course they are now profitable to me. And I'm grateful for those experiences because they now allow me to help other people like other men that are going through the same thing. And I actually had uh, uh, somebody that was working for me, uh, probably about two months ago, he and I were working at a, uh, he was also in recovery, early sobriety. And uh, he and I were working in a, in a vacant property and it was, it was just as like kind of a safe space. And he, um, I was able to use those exact experiences and, and have a connection with him where he was, that was the, that, that issue, those issues were the the reoccurring theme in in the the shame that he feels and the reason that he continues to go back to drugs and alcohol and that's the way it was for me and now those times are profitable to me to be able to help other people so I, I try to approach my past from an attitude of gratitude I know that sounds cheesy but if I can be grateful for everything that happened in my past I'm now much better suited to be able to help other people in the future I absolutely agree and. You know, I the first time I ever told my story was actually um, going back. My my sponsor was fantastic at volunteering me to do things <laughs> all the time. So the first time I ever told my story um, was at Harbor House for the ladies, and I shared it with them. And I remember the first time I told my story to a, a mixed a co-ed group. It kind of got stuck in my throat, and then I just kind of pushed forward and told exactly what I needed to tell because it's part of my story. Right. But what I found out after a couple of times, it only, it not only helps people, other women or people who've been the victim, but I could tell by the look in some of the men's eyes, they might need to check their behavior. Right. Because I kind of reinforced as well, um, be careful how you treat people because what you may think is nothing can change somebody else's life in an instant. Right. And I could tell some of the people in the audience from their look, were thinking through which side of that equation had they been on. Right. And, and a lot of, uh, I can't speak for all men, but uh, a lot of men, you know, especially people that are uh, involved with drugs and alcohol in their past or have drugs and alcohol in their past, I mean, we, we did some awful, awful things. And what was important about you giving your story that time in my eyes was you pushed through that fear. You pushed through that, whatever that fear was that you were dealing with, you made it a conscious decision to know this needs to be said. I'm going to say it. I'm going to push forward with what needs to be said. And as a result of you being true and authentic to who you are in your story, you were then able to perhaps open the eyes of these other men and women that may have, have, well, specifically with the men in this scenario that, that could have been, you know, struggled with that. And, and I just, my heart is saying that as a result of you doing that, um, perhaps some other woman 
indirectly could be helped by what you said there. So kudos to you for pushing through that uncomfortable bit inside of you and, and just being true and authentic to who you are. And as a result of that, and I say all that to say, that's, that's how we can be of maximum service to other people. When we're true and authentic to who we are in our stories, then we can be of maximum service to other people. I'll go. <laughs> so you're in, uh, you have a professional, what's the word I'm looking for? You're in the addiction profession. Were you in the healthcare world, the mental health profession before you got sober? No, it's actually kind of funny. Um, kind of a strange mix of degrees now. So I started off the business route, MBA route, and I worked in investment banking and um, financial analysis. So it's a whole new world. When I got sober, um, like everybody else in the world, you know, I wanted to save everybody. You know, this is awesome. I can't wait to save people. Um, so I thought about going back into the financial industry, but there was something inside of me that said, for one thing, um, the environment where I worked before just thrived on ego. Oh, I would imagine, yeah. <laughs> Stress. Sure. And I just thought, I don't think I'm capable of being the person I think I should become there. Now, I know a lot of, there are people that do it, I'm sure, but I didn't think I could do it. Um, so I went back to school and got a master's in social work at Southern and then switched fields. Look at you. So Since 2011. Mm -hmm. It's pretty impressive. She's been busy. You have been busy. So tell everybody what you do. So currently I'm the executive director at Harbor House. Okay. And for those of, yeah, of uh, those of us that don't know what Harbor House is, what is that? It is an adult treatment center, um, South Jackson, almost to Byram, um, for men and women, residential only in recovery support groups. Um, we have 34 beds available for what's considered primary residential. Um, with our new clinical terminology and ASAM criteria, we get away from primary and secondary because people equate that with length of time. So we're much more person-centered now. So high intensity is what people are usually thinking about with primary, but um, it can be from 30 days to 90 days. And then in March... You can get 90 days of what we generally consider primary treatment? Absolutely. No kidding. It's more person-centered because... You know, you may come in and need you're not doing you good enough. <laughs> you may need a month, and I may be a hot mess. You need, and need two eight, months. So. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> you know, I met my wife at the Harbor House. Yeah, she tells yeah. a lovely story about how dapper and everything I was. No, I'm kidding. The first time she saw me, she thought I'd had some. Kidding about the dapper part of the Harbor House the, part. Look, I had a big old mouthful of meth as I walked in the front door, <laughs> and no, she, I can remember. People walking in, and I'm on the floor uh, at the front desk, and I've got this briefcase full of paperwork and shit everywhere. <laughs> I know uh, Ian. You know Ian. I don't know if Ian was there when you. Were, uh, he was a, a counselor there, and he was like, "We all thought you had flipped out to the other side of your brain." <laughs> and bro, I remember the first but, time I came over. To, I'm sorry, but 
first time I came over to your house and you were like rummaging through like a rental car that was in your garage. Or Sounds something. right. Sounds right. <laughs> I was like, this guy, this guy it right here, on, man. Son. That was the briefcase meant to show how important you were? I guess. <laughs> Look, there would have been the most random selection of meaningless things <laughs> in there. Chick-fil-A receipts. <laughs> that reminds me, there was a guy at Dallas North Group. Um when I was there, and I remember him telling a story that when he had gotten fired and he didn't want to tell his family, he'd get up and put his suit on and get his briefcase and leave every morning. And I can, I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm here for it. <laughs> he had he had no money. He'd spent all his money. Who does? Whatever his wife didn't take. <laughs> but he would go to Kroger and walk around pushing the cart, and he would be eating the food he put in the cart with the suit on because he figured, I'm wearing a suit. Everyone knows I'm going to pay for it. And then he would leave the abandoned cart and leave. And so he would go to different stores. But he had the suit and the briefcase. So he had his cover. Sounds good. I mean, <laughs> I, it sounds like something I would do in the in the past there, 100%. So I think I went to Harbor House four times total. Okay. It didn't, it didn't end well. Well, you weren't ready. I was not. Anyway, we can, we can tell crazy stories about yeah. that. Nobody cares about that. I'm, I'm, I know that since I've been there, I know Harbor House has implemented the use of Suboxone and things mm-hmm. like that. How's that working for you? How, I, I've, I've spoken to other professionals about the use of Suboxone, generally known as MAT, for those listening. Um, how, do, how do you think it's working? Right now, what we have, I think it, it is working well the way it's supposed to. And I say the way it's supposed to because um, years ago, probably 2016, when I worked at Department of Mental Health, um, I was working on our first state's first opioid grant. And the grant requires, a lot of people don't realize, but, um, you know, no one at HHS Federal gives anyone any money without a lot of strings attached. A lot of strings. So... People can be on either side of the debate, but the point that everyone needs to understand is when you take federal money, you abide by federal guidelines. And with this opioid money, it is a federal guideline that you allow anyone that comes into your treatment center to take advantage of any form of medication-assisted treatment that is approved by the FDA. So you either can not accept that and not get the money, to run your treatment center or you accept it. Um, so a lot of treatment centers around the state, you know, everyone has their own view on it. Um, back then in 2017 timeframe, you know, old school AA in my head, I was not supportive of it. Fast forward with fentanyl and the speed of overdoses um, fentanyl being in everything from THC to meth. meth, cocaine, it's in everything. So now when you've got a 19-year-old who hasn't even had a chance at life, who can't stop IV heroin use coming in, you better believe when it's appropriate, it's the only way to keep somebody alive long enough for them to even make a decision about what kind of recovery path they want. I was totally against it. And I thought this is just some silly crutch and some game by the pharmaceutical companies to, you know, look, y'all make Oxycontin on one in one factory and you make 
Suboxone and the other. Right. And then I had, do you know Keenan Wald? Mm-hmm. So I had, I love Keenan. So I had him on, well, actually he spoke at the lawyers convention one time. Okay. And I thought that's a, he makes a compelling case for yes. it. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't view recovery quite as in the binary fashion that we do, you know, Oh, you relapse, you failed. You know, Hey, look, if I can get somebody not to OD in two weeks and come back, that's a victory. Absolutely. Keenan is awesome in a lot of ways, but he was one of the first that I remember. Um, cause I was still at department of mental health when we first met and he was one of the first people in this area that I heard describe the use of Suboxone, the pros and cons, the appropriateness, um, what I would consider the right way. He's got straight-on, accurate messaging about it. Look, I want to be Keenan when I grow up. I know, me too. He's as cool as they come. Yes, he is. And, you know, very measured and stoic and just reasonable. It was Absolutely. His arguments were very appealing to me, and so I've kind of changed my mind on it. And I think one thing I had to learn over the years is my view of MAT, and, you know, Subox is not the only form. There's naltrexone, there's Vivitol, Vivitrol, which is benign. It's not narcotic in any way. So there are other forms of medication use um, that no one ever talked about before. It just wasn't as prevalent. Um, but one of the things that, that I had to learn was that my view of Suboxone use previously was only from people who said it didn't work for them. Well, the more I learned, you have to actually do what your doctor you know, take it as prescribed. There's a protocol. Not as much as you want. Um, Don't mix it with other illicit substances. That's pretty key in having the treatment be effective. And the T in medication-assisted therapy, the MAT, is therapy. A lot of people were just doctor shopping for their Suboxone just like they were for benzos and other things. Right. So obviously there's no therapy in that, in that, situation you have to address the underlying issues exactly and so um for me it really wasn't until coming to harbor house and um we you know bringing on our current medical director um dr randy easterling that i learned how is this supposed to actually work you know other doctors um prescribe a really really large amount that's not only not effective but harmful so, and, you know, we have a contract. People have to do what they have to do. You know, it's not something where you just come get your prescription, take it as you want, mix it with what you want, never have to do a drug test, never have to go to therapy. Um, and then people can make the decision with their doctor. Is it something that you stay on a low dose for a long time? Or is it something that you choose, you know, with your doctor's um, input to wean off of? Just like any other you know, situation. But I like to tell people too, you know, you think about people who don't understand addiction and people who have a very strong opinion when they don't understand anything about addiction. Um, you know, type two diabetes is not something I'm born with. Addiction is not something I'm born with. It develops. Maybe bad choices influence and exacerbate active addiction, just like bad choices influence and exacerbate developing diabetes right but when somebody's body reaches a point where they need insulin am i gonna make fun of them 
or stigmatize them because they're That's taking a good insulin. Point. That's a good yeah. point. And it's not up to me. It's not up to a nutritionist or a therapist to tell that person whether or not their body needs something. That's well, a medical decision. You know, who am I to say what layers of accountability are too many? I mean, you know, it. when I was first getting sober, I had more layers of accountability in my life than I do now, but I still have them. And, you know, when I first got sober, I lived in an Oxford house and was subject to random drug screens. And now as a part of the lawyer's program, I'm still subject to drug screens. I don't have them as often as I once did, but I still have them. It's really not a great deal different than the layers of accountability provided by longer term use of Suboxone. So you think it's a net positive for the treatment world? I absolutely think it is for the appropriate person because, like we've said, I can't help you retain any treatment, whether it's clinical treatment and therapy or whether it's even AA in the steps. If I can't keep you alive long enough to make a decision about where you want to be in life, you know, I know I've already lost. Addiction is addiction is addiction. It doesn't matter the substance, but really fentanyl does kind of change the, the formula because you, you can go do the exact same thing you've done for the past two months and die. You know, I, I didn't know more of this substance. It came out of the same bag mm -hmm. even. And yeah. It's, it's Russian roulette. roulette. It truly Just, is. Uh, it's, an, it's insane. It's absolutely yeah. insane. And it, like you said, it's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. If I were still in active addiction today, there's not a question in my mind that while fentanyl and downers were never my, never my thing, I was always Adderall, meth, whatever. Um, nothing is pure today, and I there's not a question in my mind that I would be dead um, probably within the first week of, of, of my life if I went back to meth. Well, the ubiquitousness of pill presses makes everything. Right. right. I mean, I've seen stuff online where things, you know, Adderall pills look exactly like Adderall pills, but they're... They're not. They're not. They're either meth and meth with fentanyl or everything has fentanyl in it. And what blows me away, honestly, is a lot of recovery things come across my social media uh, platforms, um, like a lot, like 95% of it. Um, and what blows me away is is people to say, yeah, I'm, I'm sober off of uh, fentanyl. Like the, the fact that somebody can say I'm sober off of fentanyl, is, it it's kind of blows me away because like it – you you're playing with just an incredibly, incredibly dangerous gun and to, to make it through that. So if there's to, to tap into this, what we're talking about here, if there is anything that can help someone stay alive and stay off of those upper, you know, any kind of our, our downer medications uh, or drugs, I'm a hundred percent for it. And I used to be completely anti and that stemmed from me watching someone detox off of uh, suboxone when i was at copac mm -hmm. and they were my roommate and they were i would sit with them and they were doing this all night in the on the couch and just like just uh, going through a hell that i never ever want to experience so but if if it's if it's a positive thing for someone to to stay alive i you know i'm i'm all for it i'm just very nervous about having putting anything in my life that's a that's a um a crutch for me you know because and i'll take advantage of that and that's why it's you know we say when it's appropriate right so it's not something that you just um 
Yeah, I think I'd like to be on it. It's not that simple. It's, right. There's an interview process this is and the, an exam. Yeah. and It's a life or death situation. Right. Decision. And I've, you know, I don't get into too many debates with people on it. But sure. when people try to debate or have such a negative view the where they're closed-minded, I just say, you know, I'm not going to debate it. But I would recommend you talk to some parents who've lost their children. And you ask right. them, do they wish their child could have been on something that might have kept them alive? Yeah, no I mean, kidding. Yeah, 100% of them I What are you going to tell say, a parent? Right. That's what I tell people. Right. You know. Yeah, there, there's, I think they would choose the other form. 100%. If it bought, you know, if he gives, a, gives you a fighting chance, then right. 100%. You'll live to fight another day. Right. Mm -hmm. I know I'm kind of hopping around here, but it's really interesting to me to talk to people who are actually in, you know, the addiction treatment world. So do you do, are you, a, do you do any counseling with any of the patients there? Or are you strictly just doing administrative, performing administrative functions? Yeah. I wish I had 10 hours a week to do counseling, to work on my LCSW. That is my dream someday. Right now, um, my husband especially has told me I do not have an extra 10 hours a week <laughs> with the time I put in now. But um, typically, I do not. And so I am trained in EMDR for trauma. And so when we've had people come through that would benefit from that, then I have done individualized therapy services. What is more rewarding for you? Being the captain of the ship yeah. and keeping things, you know, uh, maintaining compliance with whatever state and federal restrictions there are or you know and knowing that you're doing that well and providing a place for people to get help or is it more boots on the ground talking to people i think they're so different for me they they really both are that's kind of a lazy response but the reason being is that um well they can be if, rewarding in different ways if i know that i can do some things to I believe in more of a servant leader approach. And so if I can do some things to cut out waste, to give people raises that I know bust their tail day in and day out to take care of people, then that's incredibly rewarding. Um, or if I can promote someone into a new position, to me, that's rewarding. Help them grow. Exactly. Sure. So that's taking care of the staff, um, which is important because the staff is who takes care of the people directly, our clients. Right. Um, but at the same time, when I can find time during the week, I love hanging out with the clients and joining in in groups or um, if I drop by on a weekend and just seeing what they're doing. I mean, that's the fun part. Maybe you should resurrect the Harbor House tradition of doing the hokey pokey. <laughs> I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> what was her name? Oh, I can't remember. What? 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 Tell they, us a little bit about this. What was her? I think she had. She's in recovery around here, and I can see her face. And I think, I think she has a PhD, and she was a counselor there. And I think on Friday afternoon, you would all go into the parking lot, and everybody would do the po hokey pokey. <laughs> uh, you know, because the you know when you do the hokey pokey, you turn you yourself, turn yourself around. around. <laughs> <laughs> you you could be so, you could resurrect the hokey pokey tradition. Well, we have some very long term staff members. Miss Jackie's been there thirty five years, so I'm going to have to ask her about that. Oh, she, I, I mean, yeah. I, I can awesome. see her. I've been in meetings with this lady. I can't remember. I can't. I can't believe I can't remember her name. I have to think about it. Now we don't do that, but we have um, 
it's been over a year now. We do have um, the first Friday of every month. We kind of let the clients chill, and they have groups in the morning, and then the afternoon we spend um, just having fun. We just take the afternoon off. Pizza. Soda, this is a perfect opportunity for the hokey pokey. Basketball. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to. We'll get everybody out in the basketball court. That sounds great. If you lose, sure, <laughs> the losing sure. team has to do the hokey pokey. Absolutely. Uh, hey, we'll be there. Recovery Lab will be there, hundred <laughs> percent. So, tell us a little bit about what it sounds like uh, to me, at least. And I can't certainly speak for Drew, but it seems like you are an incredibly busy, busy person. There's lots of things that you have to take care of. There's lots of, um, uh, people depend on you, um, in order for, for day-to-day operations and, and for, uh, strength and guidance. And that, that has to be while rewarding, I'm sure taxing at some point. Um, so what do you do if you feel the need to decompress, if you need to take a step Good back question. for just a second, like what, what kind of fills your cup up from halfway to, to all the way full? Um, and, and, and if there's nothing, if you don't need to decompress, that's fine too. Some people are like that. But w- when you need some some you time or just some family time, what's your go-to to kind of <sighs> exhale for just a minute? What does that look like for you? Well, I think um, it varies, but I think the key thing for me to start with is um, – We have a management team in Harbor House right now that I believe is better than any I've ever seen. I've worked at different organizations in banking and Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, finance companies. We have a top-notch management team. And I learned a long time ago, I don't like to be micromanaged, and I do my best to never be in a position to micromanage anyone else. They know their role, they know their authority, and they get it done. And I think the best day in the world is when nobody even notices if I'm there because they they take care of the place. They run the place. All that to say, if there's stress on me, um, it's because I'm either trying to take charge or think that I personally have to have all the answers. Um, it's the same thing in the therapy world. You know, when a clinician... Um, really feels burnout. What I was taught was burnout comes when I feel like I have to have all your answers. Um, In the social work field, as far as therapy, clinical work, it's kind of very similar to me as far as sponsorship. I don't have your answers. I learn techniques and approaches or steps that I share with you and guide you into finding your answers for yourself. And so to me, whether you're managing people, leader in in an organization, whether you're a clinician working with an individual, or whether you're a sponsor, I'm not God in your life. Right. I should be a conduit to help you find your own answers, your own higher power, your own solution to a problem at work. And so when I'm in a good place spiritually... I can stay in that lane better. Um, but to me, you know, it's I like to go to the gym, lift weights, work out. Um, I have to manage my own program. You know, I meet with my sponsor, and I work with my sponsees, and that has nothing to do with work. So, you know, 
you were laughing about Barry V a long time ago. He's the first person I remember explaining to me um, that whatever I did next, work is not my program. Right. And I don't bring work into my program. And I don't rely on my work to be my program. Right. What I do for my recovery is totally separate, and I have to always know that and never mix the two up. I knew someone that was very close to me that uh, worked in a treatment facility for a considerable amount of time, and um, this person was um, – uh, that was their program. Um, working in the treatment facility was their program, um, and, and – from from what it sounded like to me, it, it there was that that can be really really difficult when you don't have a, a program outside of work, um, and the fact that that Barry said that I think that's unbelievably completely on point because mm-hmm. you have to you have to work your own program. You if if you're like me and an alcoholic and you don't have a program, you're gonna be miserable. That's just um, that's just the way I am. Um, and and it it sounds like you have as a result of you know life experiences you've learned that um, the best possible way for you to be of maximum service is to to stay spiritually fit do what's necessary in order to do that and apply the tools of the program uh, to your life and um, I mean it sounds like you're just you're you're kind of just killing it out there and the fact that what what warms my heart more than anything was the humility that you had when you said these people could do that. This place could run, you know, basically without me sitting on top of everybody and saying, you need to do this. You need to do this. That, that speaks a tremendous amount to your character in my eyes that, um, that you don't feel as though you have to control everything that you can rely on the people that, that are in place now in order to do their job and, and have faith that they're going to do everything that they need to do in order to keep their, keep your clients uh, taken care of in any, any way, shape or form. I think that's, I think that you're a great person and I, and I, I think that you're doing a phenomenal job out there. But I have to, it's, it's true though. Like it's a phenomenal staff. They know what they're doing. Um, And I think the dumbest thing I could possibly do is to interfere. <laughs> right, right, right. But you have the you have the knowledge to and, and the experience to be able to say that with confidence that, and 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 to know that that's that doesn't come naturally for a lot of people. Um, it, it just doesn't, and it, it makes for a kind of a toxic workplace. It does. But you know, you you mentioned something earlier. It just made me think about that. You know, in recovery, it's about faith and it's about trust, and so. I love, you know, working at Harbor House. Um, but I was working at, you know, Region 8 before that. I wasn't looking for a job. I loved working at Region 8. I mean, I loved the people there um, and what we were doing there. And this opportunity came to me. And so it's another thing that I learned. Um, I love my work at Department of Mental Health. But someone, in, you know, an opportunity came up three times. And I finally said, wait a minute. This should I be looking at this? Maybe this means something. And so it's kind of like what I've told people when I first got sober. And they said, you know, are you going to stay in Mississippi or go to North Carolina or go back to Texas? And I said, well, I'm going to be where I am until God puts me somewhere else. Right. And so where I am today, I think just one of the many strengths of AA 
and recovery is if I do what was suggested and what my sponsor taught me, which is have faith and trust God. And if I really mean that, then I'll do my best every day and know that if it's time for me to go, someone will tell me, you know, this, I think sometimes, I think sometimes people want to keep control because they're afraid. It's all fear. They have to control everybody. It's all fear. But I don't think they see the beauty of, um, my job is to take care of the people at Harbor house that work there. It's an amazing staff and they will do the work and they'll tell me if they need something from me. And if I'm no longer needed there, somebody will move me somewhere else. But you don't have to be afraid of losing control because you really shouldn't have it. Right. Is Victor still out there? You better believe it. I love Victor. (laughs) Uh, Really. um, I mean. He's probably working right now. (laughs) He's a great person. And tell him I said hello. I, I don't know if he'll remember me or not, but so he, the guy that was laying on the floor with a briefcase, you <laughs> he'll, remember? He'll probably remember that. <laughs> uh, yeah, Victor. He he makes you feel good, um, you know, like you matter and that you care, and he'll hug you, and it's meaningful. But anyway, he used to tell me, you know, I would say, "Look, you know, I've got these problems, but I just don't know what to do. But I feel like I need to do something." And he said, "Look." Just, you don't have to do something. You know, you want to do something because you feel like, you know, you feel like you're all powerful and that you're going to think of the right thing to do. But sometimes just don't do anything. Right. Just do, go to a meeting and shut up and just don't make a, a big decision. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And that's something that I even dealt with, um, I guess about three weeks ago. Um my, my therapist, what's up, Zed? Um, he, uh, I, I was kind of dealing with something and there was some, some, some work things. I was kind of in a transition period, still am in a transition period. And I, I kind of, I was uncharacteristically searching for an answer from him. Um, I was like, what, what, what do I do, bro? Like, what do I, and he just said in the, in his, his calm voice, just don't do anything. I was like, what? What? Oh, wrong, I, I don't know about wrong that. Wrong answer. But uh, he's never led me astray before, and and that's what I did. And you know what happened? Three days later, I got a message from someone out of the blue and said, "Hey, we're we're looking for for somebody to. It's a full time position, salary. Um, do you know of anybody looking for a, a, a new career?" And I was like, "As a matter of fact, I do." Know somebody. <laughs> I mean, and it's one of those things that like. The, the business from my, the, the, the income from my business that I've had for 20 years, it just, it just slowed down and, and all but stopped and, and ceased being profitable. And in, in active addiction that it had got, business had gotten slow before. Um, and, and I just freaked out and I lashed out at everyone because I was fearful that I wouldn't be able to provide or uh, afford the things that I wanted or, or get the things that we needed or whatever. And, in, in sobriety, I just have this, specifically in the past month, just this unbelievable sense that God is going to take care of everything. And I've tried to completely rid myself of any sort of self-centered fear of not being able to provide um, because that was where my, that was my identity. I, I made it a pretty decent amount of money and that was kind of my, like my ego was kind of, act, you know, pretty 
I, I tried to like hide you it, go but popping off wasn't it? deep down, I, I kind of thought I was something because of the amount of money that I was making. And, and God kind of took that away and provided a way that right now is not nearly as much money as I was making, but the future could be very, very bright for this position. And I think that that was in hindsight, looking back, although it was only a month ago, I think that that was God, you know, trying to, to teach me and, and help me to, to learn how to, um, be, be where I'm at, where my feet are and appreciate what I have and, and, and rely on him more robustly, um, or, or with, with greater, um, I don't know. I'm trying to overthink this here, but well, that's uh, the paradox. You know, we, (laughs) we too, we, we too seldom, seldomly allow God to help us through hard things because we want to get in there and tinker with it. Right. Right. And that by doing that, we don't grow our trust and faith in God to help us through these trying, you know, these taxing issues of life. And, and my faith grows leaps and bounds when things are difficult. It doesn't necessarily grow when things are really great and everything is taken care of and everything is going my way. I I, I don't learn um, as effectively when things are going my way. I, and so throughout this difficult time, I've just I, I've had I, I just try to stay grateful for what I have and, and grateful for the, the the incredible blessings that I have in this in this world. And I, I wouldn't have that without sobriety. I I, w- I just I wouldn't have the ability to feel what I'm feeling, sit where I'm at, um, and, and, and to trust anything other than myself. And when I start trusting myself, you better watch out because I'm not, I'm not fun to be around at all. Uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm grateful for sobriety. I'm just freaking grateful for sobriety. We are nearing the end of our therapeutic hour. Here. Oh my gosh. Waka, waka, waka. <laughs> uh, here comes the question. Well, I, I'm going to save my fi- my favorite two for the very end. But look, okay. if somebody wants, they've got a yes, loved one yes, that's yes, on yes. that shit, they're not doing right, <laughs> how, how do they get in the Harbor House? What do they do? We make it real easy these days. Make it easy. So they can call the main number. You want to tell us that main yep. number? Sure. 601-371-7335. What was it again? One more time, please. 601 371 371 7335. 7335. And we have trained all staff when they answer the phone, there's a minimum amount of information that we require to get from the person. It's really important the person needing services calls themselves. Okay. It's okay if someone wants to call on someone else's behalf to kind of get their name on the radar. But we have we need the individual to call themselves. Sure. Um, but minimum amount of information and our admission staff will get people lined up as soon as possible. So if, if you're struggling, you don't you, you, you don't have to expect a three hour long conversation in order to get your name on the radar. Correct. Got it. We Look, go on, call Harbor House today. You know you need it. You know you're not living right. Yeah, if you need help, they're here. And they do a phenomenal job. And the food's good. Can't speak to that. The food is excellent. Food is good. <laughs> every time, every single time I have scrambled eggs and put Louisiana hot sauce on it, I think about having breakfast. <laughs> and I, I tell Kimberly, you know what this reminds me of? And she's like, it's the Harbor House. Well, I'm glad to hear you say Harbor House and not Waffle House. <laughs> right. The food is good. Absolutely. Okay. Here we go. These are my favorite two questions. Okay. Let's do it. What do you do poorly in your recovery? 
I think, and this is something that I kind of struggled with for a little bit before I got to Harbor House. So I had kind of lost touch with my previous sponsor. And I kept telling myself, I need to find another sponsor. I need to find another sponsor. And I kept putting it off. So when I got to Harbor House and started going to Swing and Bridge Group, because it's right down the road, right. and we started taking clients there and so forth. Um, so I asked someone else to be my sponsor. So I think as far as poorly, I need to make sure that I stay connected with my sponsor like I did at six months, like I did at six years, because I need to walk the walk. 100%. Okay. And what do you do well in your recovery? I think as hard as it is at times, I focus on the few things that I know I can control, which is honesty. The number, you know, the principle behind step 1. That's what I focus on. Because it seems like, and a lot of people don't, may not like my truth, what I have to say, my answer or decision or what, what have you. But I know from my experience, back to that, you know, 16-year-old traumatic event, I have to be honest and let God take care of the outcome. Because when I... If I lie to you, I've already lied to myself to justify why I think it's okay. Sure. And from there on, it's a slippery slope, and I'll be down it in a heartbeat. Right. So I would say the one thing I do focus on intentionally is honesty. Translation, she's going to tell you something that might hurt your feelings. <laughs> <laughs> well, my sponsor taught me also that well, as, long got as, to. as long as I'm honest with compassion, your feelings Sadly, or your problem and not mine. Amen. Exactly. Hey, I tell you what, I've learned that very, very well at uh, Al-Anon as well. I don't know if, if if you're out there and you have an issue struggling with uh, controlling people like I did, uh, or still do, if left to my own devices, um, Al-Anon could be a really, really great opportunity Speaking for that you truth. to yeah, detach with love. All right, everybody. I guess we're about done. Thank you so much for taking this time. Yes, thank you so thank much. You we appreciate me. it. We appreciate it. Thank don't, you very don't much. Don't wait on the paycheck because you're not getting one. For <laughs> <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much, and we'll see you next week. We're out.